This is Radio Stockdale. Welcome to Radio Stockdale. I'm your host, Michael Sears, at the Stockdale Center for Ethical Leadership. The Honorable Paul DeBar is a graduate of the Naval Academy. He served as a nuclear submarine officer, including a deployment to the North Pole, where he conducted environmental research. He has been a lecturer at the Naval Academy, and he conducted research at the Johns Hopkins Applied Physics Laboratory. Following his naval service and graduate school at Columbia Business School, among other things, he worked at J.P. Morgan as an investment banker and managing director for mergers and acquisitions. Back in government service, he served as the Undersecretary of Energy for Science. He also served on the Department of Energy's Environmental Management Advisory Board. I see no better person to talk about the topic today than the Honorable Paul DeBar. Welcome to Radio Stockdale. Michael, great to be here. It's it's good to have you. And, you know, this is a podcast about leadership, ethics, law, and character. And what I want to do today is, is to actually look at those ideas through the lens of risk and ingenuity. Now, I've given you, given you a little bit of an intro, but you used to be the guy who was responsible for all the national labs and the nuclear stockpiles we have in this country, right? Yeah, that's that's right. I uh, ran what used to be uh, started as the Manhattan Project, and uh, it evolved into into dealing with the largest uh, science questions. Uh, Seventy thousand people, uh, energy, science, and actually continuing uh, the weapons mission, delivering warheads to the Air Force and the Navy. So let me take you all the way back to the starting point. You know, you're a JO standing in front of a reactor on a nuclear submarine, how, is, how important is understanding and embracing risk and ingenuity, I'll put both of those out there, in the Naval Service? Yeah, so I, I think there's a, there's a mix between looking at risk from a downside perspective and also looking at risk as, uh, as needing to take risks. And it kind of depends on what your role is and where you're at uh, in, in when you're in the Naval Service. So I'll, I'll, I'll give you... I'll give you an example of that from from my submarine time, uh, where it was to some degree, uh, at least from my opinion, split between whether you were the engineering watch officer or the uh, the officer of the deck in charge of the whole submarine. If you're at the back of the boat running the reactor, naval reactors uh, has highly engineered procedures to 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 go execute on. And to a large degree, uh, you know, the risk in the back of the boat was was more downside, right? Your your job was just to keep the boat running in terms of uh, making steam, making electricity, and turning turning the screw. And so, in, in that instance, you know, running a reactor and running an engine room, risk was was worried about the downside uh, for that. Uh, when you're at the front of the boat in charge of the whole boat, which uh, also included the engine room, but but to a large degree, it was driving the boat on the mission, whether you're off Petropavlovsk or under the ice or doing maneuvers with other navies. Um, when you know, you're trying to follow a Russian submarine, you know, the amount of risk, uh, the, the sort of risk for that uh, as a submarine officer is quite a bit different. If you're there trying to uh, follow a, a Russian submarine or, or some other adversary target, 
you, the the risk is to a large degree more on the upside. Uh, you know how much how much risk can you take uh, in order to get into a certain position to do uh, a certain part of, of what you were directed to go do, and uh, and and frankly, you have to take risk when you're driving a boat in that situation in order to go execute on what your what your orders are. I, I like the way you're breaking that up, especially you know from the aft end of the submarine to the front end. You, you know, the aft end you're talking about process and the discipline of following procedures. The front end you're talking about working with people, understanding geometry and physics, you know, and other things. But you know, in the naval service, I mean, as you're saying, there's a risk, and I'm going to put the, put the word in reward. I mean, there's different there's different ways to look at risk. We don't like failure. T- tell me your definition of failure, either you know, in the Navy, in government, or in business. What what's your sense of what a failure is? Yeah. So, um, so I I consider that there's you know once again there's some failure around something in which you have a very specific kind of what I would call an engineering or an operational issue construction. I delve a lot running the national labs around construction. And so, you know, failure could, you know, you know, once again, using the similar analogy to the back of the boat to the front of the boat, you know, failure, if you're building a large nuclear facility for weapons or for science or, or anything like that, even supercomputers that I did at the big national labs, cer- certainly around construction, uh, you know, of not being on time and on budget to, to show people above you, uh, president, the secretary of Congress, that you were able to deliver, you know, on, on something on time and on budget and performing the way it's supposed to, you know, that's clearly, you know, uh, a downside, a downside risk, you know, from, you know, from that point of view, but, and, and, and clearly a failure, right? If you're not on time and on budget and, and on performance of what the design of the system of the supercomputer or whatever is. But on the upside of a, of a, of a failure is that many times as I ran, the largest book for research and development for basic research and development in the country, allocating dollars, you know, to $500,000 here and there to individual researchers at a national lab or at major universities where they've basically pitched us to go uh, do some discovery on something dealing with quarks and gluons or a chemistry that could be better than lithium ion. And a failure there is that we've spent uh, $500,000 to support somebody uh, at one of those places, and they don't quite hit what they had pitched us. But that's okay, uh, actually, because that that sort of, quote, failure is very high risk, but high risk in a positive way, in which we're allocating money as a kind of portfolio theory, to use a a financial reference. Same thing in, in discovery research. We know that we're spread, spreading money to a lot of different, you know, kind of thousand points of light, to, to quote the former president, and uh, and know that a lot of them will not hit exactly what they're targeting because it's very early stage discovery. And but we know that periodically something amazingly will come out uh, of uh, of all those bets. You know, I like the way you mentioned that. Let me take you back specifically to the naval service, and you and I haven't talked about this before, but you know, I want to go all the way back to the Battle of Midway. Nimitz took some risks, right? I mean, he didn't have that much, that many assets. Did he take risks or, and, and is that a, was that a downside risk relative to Hawaii or San Diego, San Francisco, or was it an upside risk? If, if you follow me there in terms of how he deployed his fleet. Yeah. I mean, I, I think, I think the battle of Midway and the decision that they made there to, you know, 
put all their assets, including one that wasn't working too well uh, because of the previous battle, mm-hmm. um, is actually a great example that it's both an upside and a downside risk, uh, and and so that 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 sort of balance that that they had to make uh, you know, kind of roll the dice on. Obviously, there was significant downside risk that if they had lost um, that uh, that Hawaii and probably the whole war uh, would have uh, you know could have been lost. But uh, there was an upside risk uh, also on on succeeding uh, beyond what would almost kind of make sense. Uh, from a probability point of view, given given the asset difference and so on. And uh, obviously it turned out uh, on the completely positive side, but you took downside risk uh, at the same time as, t- as taking that upside risk. So, so as a naval officer, I'm going to kind of wrap everything you're saying here, risk and failure together. There is going to be failure. There's going to be times when the plane augers in or the submarine you know, starts leaking or what have you. You can tell, you know, there are a lot of different scenarios where where these things happen, but failure is going to happen. And, and I'm not asking you whether or not you've taken audacious risks, but you've got to take risks as a naval officer, as a as a person in business. You've got to take those chances, well-reasoned chances. Do you have a comment about that? I mean, is there is there a way to describe when you need to take those risks and when not? I'm not talking about rolling the dice. I'm just talking about when you take those reasonable chances? Yeah, so I'll, I'll give one from my undersecretary time uh, when it uh, comes to something which is you know, somewhat topical in the technology world, which is, which is dealing with quantum technologies and quantum computers. You know, in, in, in that instance, when I had showed up as undersecretary, there had been 100 years of work on theory and 20 years of working on technology around how we could program an atom rather than a transistor to store and process data. The theory was very well laid out that it would be a, a monumental improvement upon digital technologies. And uh, so the question, you know, when I came in, amongst others, was whether, you know, that, that, that sort of the situation that I walked into in terms of the development of those efforts and those technologies had reached a point where it, where it might make sense to dramatically increase the investment because it had reached a a de-risking level that it was it was uh worthwhile to put a lot more money into it that the discovery science had been kind of well developed uh and that uh, additional money could make some some material improvements on potential applications i i i e actually making a quantum computer that would work uh and 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 ergo dramatically uh you know move beyond what current computers do and uh, so, you know, a lot of what I, I did in that instance was to do very detailed reviews of where everyone was at with their technologies and what uh, sort of judgment that they had. If they had more money, if they had more resources, uh, were they at a point where they could, could materially take off? A- after doing diligence on that as undersecretary, uh, that risk reward, uh, you know, kind of convinced me that, that we could we could do that. And I had to go to Congress and convince people. So it wasn't just me uh, that, that that needed to be convinced, but a lot of people. We ended up quintupling the amount of federal investment into quantum technologies. An example, when you know how many bits, qubits in this case, when I came in to, uh, as undersecretary that were working as a quantum chip, it was six, uh, six bits, qubits. And um, someone just announced this last week that they got up to 433 
uh, of working uh, working uh, quantum bits uh, in, in a computer chip. So that's an example, I think, of you know, kind of evaluating what the risks are, what the base capabilities are at the time, and trying to show some judgment. And and, and in that case, we've we've uh, took a lot of risk and, and accomplished quite a bit. But it sounds like you did your homework. You're starting from a foundation of understanding physics and making sure you're applied yourself well enough. Every now and then you've got to take a leap, but you're not taking a leap, you know, off the deep end with no knowledge of what's going on. Let me let me change last question here, because you and I have talked about this, and I, I really appreciate your the, the way you've approached your career, especially relative to the creativity thing. You know, there are, there are a lot of circumstances where, you, know, you work your rear end off on your on the job at hand, the job right in front of you. you. You've said before that you've done and you've seen other folks kind of reserve a portion of your working life to actually apply to other things. What's that about? Yeah, so I've had this uh, this bit of philosophy in, in my life, and I've had a, a few different things I've done in my life that that are are are, are linked, but uh, but from the outside, uh, you know, may not be quite so obvious. And I, I approach my career that ninety nine percent of your your work life should be focused on the work that you have in front of you, doing the very best possible, accomplishing very much possible in what you, the role that you're in and. The people around you seeing that you're able to, to be successful and, 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 uh, and exceed expectations. But, uh, I've also had this little tiny portion of, of my work life, call it 1% of the time dur- during a large part of my career, of which I would carve out a little bit of my time to do something that did, was not a hundred percent obvious today that would be applicable to getting the next project done, getting the next investment done or, or so on. Just because I found it interesting. And one of the things I found out in life is that those little things off to the edge that you don't see anything in particular that will have an immediate impact on your career and your optionality around your career. Uh, but, but it might, right? It just might, but you can't predict it. And probably the biggest one that happened with me was when I was in the investing world for energy and I was you know, it would take a lot of hours a week. Uh, and I was uh, asked to join an advisory board at the Department of Energy uh, dealing with the National Lab Complex. And I, I had this conversation with my boss at the time about, about you know, getting permission to go, you know, do that for a very tiny portion of my time. And and his view was, well, this is going to distract you from your main effort. And I, and I said, well, you know, yes, I understand, but it's very minor and I, I want to do it. And it turned out that that was a, a critical part uh, that I had not planned at the time of having exposure to something else, which in this case is the Department of Energy, which was a critical part of me being offered uh, the undersecretary job subsequent 12 years later. So I, I, I think that's uh, the way I've lived my life and, and, and how to create some options in the future. I think you're saying don't get so focused, laser focused on the things right in front of you because there's so much stuff going on. On the outside, it's not a straight line all the time. Secretary DeBar, thank you for joining us on Ingenuity and Risk on Radio Stockdale. Thanks a lot. Yeah, Michael, thank you very much. You've been listening to Radio Stockdale, a series of podcasts produced by the Stockdale Center for Ethical Leadership at the United States Naval Academy. You can hear more podcasts at stockdalecenter.com. 
slash podcasts.